Hey, my friend, welcome to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. My name is Lori Seitz. I'm an entrepreneur, mentor, founder of Zen Rabbit, and your instigator in saying fuck being fine. This show is for those of you who are done living with the dumpster fire and are ready to find the tools and courage to transform, to step into more success and fulfillment in both your personal and business life. You're in the right place for stories of self-discovery, gratitude, and connection. And to help you strengthen that connection to your own inner guidance, you'll find each episode has an accompanying meditation. Now let's get into it. My guest today is Stephen English. Stephen and I are talking about the effects of working in a toxic environment. And boy, does he have some stories. We're also discussing his recovery journey, letting go of emotional burdens, and how to find empathy for yourself. I think you'll also see a recurring theme with this season's guests. If you don't pick it up on your own, I'll tell you what it is in the takeaways. Stephen is an ICF professional certified coach, a TEDx speaker, and a trained facilitator. He specializes in helping introvert leaders find their voice so they can create impact and leave a positive impression without having to pretend. He works with one-on-one coaching clients as well as big corporate clients. He's also the founder of multiple Toastmasters public speaking clubs. In his former life, Stephen was an engineering manager and served as a trainer to Fortune 500 organizations where he influenced and managed company-wide change management activities. Are you enjoying this show? Please tell three other people about it. Let's get these stories in front of more people who can benefit from hearing them so they can know they're not alone and there's nothing wrong with them. And so they too can realize it's possible to say fuck being fine. Another way to help spread the word is to hit that plus button at the top of your screen in Apple Podcasts, if you haven't already. And click on the follow button on the other platforms, if that's where you're listening. Speaking of listening, if after listening to this episode, you would like some more personal attention on adding peace and gratitude and groundedness to your life, I can help you with that. Pop over to the zenrabbit.com webpage and sign up for my VIP list. That way, you'll be the first to get all the tools and tips on finding calm amidst the chaos of life. Hello, and welcome to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. My guest today is Stephen English. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Hey there, Lori. So wonderful to be here with you today. I am very excited to have you. You and I have, quote-unquote, known each other for several years through LinkedIn, and have been following each other's content and commenting. And sometimes we've gotten on phone calls and sorted some stuff out. And so I'm really thrilled to have you on the show today to hear your story or to share your story with the rest of the world. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, you're right. It's amazing how on the LinkedIn platform we can create all these amazing connections and we can take them really as deep or as shallow as we want. You know, if, uh, two people connect and they say, Hey, we have enough in common here. Let's get on a call. Let's chit chat. Let's share ideas. Uh, then we do. And you and I, that's part of our story. And I'm really, I'm really glad and 
I'm honored here to be on your podcast. Thank you. And, you know, after each episode that I record has, each interview episode has a meditation episode that comes after it as a bonus. And you and I have talked about having you do some meditations in the, moving forward, potentially contributing some meditations to. Yeah, I would love that. I would love that. I'm, I admitted super amateur hour about it. And all I, I lean on is the fact that I've had enough people tell me I could listen to your voice to fall asleep. And I said, well, hey, there's some data right there. <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> because you have a very calming presence and way of delivering. Yeah. So I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Yeah. If I could, what, what, what's that guy? Uh, Oshi, isn't he one of the famous guys? I'll be like him. I'll be like Oshi and they'll have me on, on insight timer. I don't know Oshi, but I am on insight timer and I talk about it all the time. Now I'm going to have to go look for Oshi. Or Oso or Oshi. I don't know. I'm, I'm now, now I'm like practically thinking, did I have the name right? But you, you get the idea. I, I Now I, that yeah, you I mentioned be... that, we'll have to find it and put it in the show notes. If so, I'm right, <laughs> if I'm wrong, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll find the right person's name and put that in the show notes. Steve brain farted. Yes. <laughs> Let me ask you the first question that I like to ask all of my guests. And that is, what were the values and beliefs that you were raised with that contributed oh. to you becoming who you are? Oh, that's an interesting one. The values and beliefs that I was raised with. Um, hmm. The one that comes to my mind here is that you are valued for what you know. And I remember when I was a young, young man growing up, you know, my mother always wanted me to, you know, become a, at that time it was become a doctor. And I misinterpreted that. And I thought it was, as long as I can put doctor in front of my name. And so my idea at the time was to get a PhD in physics. So one of them was, yeah, that you're, you're valued, your value in society is what you know. Um, I guess that would be kind of one that's, that's empowering, disempowering. I, I think there weren't explicit, let's say explicit comments, or at least it's hard for me to recall where a scarcity mindset was implemented, meaning that, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. Money is hard to come by. You have to work hard to earn a living. These, I think at this point in my life, you know, I'm coming up on 49. I have, I have wiped those away. However, in the way that we lived as a family, you know, my parents were together until I was about 12 and then they got divorced and I watched my mother work her tail off. Uh, as a single mother, there was a lot of scarcity. There was a lot of, we can't afford that. Um, you know, you have to do without. And so those are the kind of the two that come to mind, right? It was maybe that, that, that money is hard, hard to come by and you are valued for your knowledge. And how did that, how did those two things play out as yeah. you grew up and, and furthered your education? Did you get a PhD? And yeah, I, I, I got, <laughs> I aimed for it. I remember when I was in high school, 
I was, I, I graduated kind of young, not like I got moved up in a grade. It was just because of where my birthday was. But I remember they were asking me, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, senior year. And I was saying, well, I want to be a, a high energy particle physicist uh, working at like CERN or Fermilab or something like that. And, and really all that's remained of that is I am high energy. And sometimes that's from caffeine. And I still do have an analytical mind from my, my physics training. I ended up going off to undergraduate, got a physics degree, went off to graduate school to pursue a PhD in physics. And then there was a moment there where I realized that at that level, it was really mathematics. Like anybody who studied physics will acknowledge fully that at the graduate level, most of it is, I'll just call it mathematics gymnastics. So what I mean by that is if you go from these first principle equations, how can you derive this useful equation that maybe some engineer is going to go use and the the steps the five or six steps that got us from fundamental principles to a useful equation that was really tough for me so so i say the language of physics is mathematics and the language of material science this is ultimately where i landed the language of material science is english and i speak english better than i speak math so that's how it all played out, you know, when when all the dust settled and all the college loans became due in 1998 after I exited graduate school. Uh, that's what I had. I had a master's in material science and a bachelor's in physics. Was anyone in your family disappointed with that? Because if they were teaching you that the value of what you know, it, that you're you're valued for what you know, did they think you didn't know enough? Oh, no, not at all. I, fortunately, my, both of my parents, <laughs> I say it kind of fortunately, fortunately, neither of them graduated college. So, and, and actually come to think of it, the only person they did, so my parents, my parents' parents, the only person that, that did graduate was my grandmother's third husband near as I can tell. So he went to Yale. Um, he got a chemical engineering degree. He was part of the greatest generation, got out GI bill, you know, was, a uh, a, a, in industry, he was, he was very highly regarded. He, he, um, was promoted several times and he ended up being a bit of a role model for me. No, there was, no one was disappointed. Uh, I, I will, I will admit my mother is probably one of the best cheerleaders and my father too. Like over the years, my father and I both have developed a, a better relationship. And and he's you know he's told me he's proud of me. You know, my mother, men in her life have jokingly said to me, "If if I listened to everything your mother said, I would believe you walked on water." So <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> no, nobody was disappointed about that. Uh, I, I will say, but uh, I sometimes. Because that belief was in me, I I felt I I fell short, and and it's taken a lot of years and 
a lot of introspection and a lot of really feedback from people who were outside of these these academic and engineering circles because just in the in the world of engineering you're you're meeting some really really intellectual maybe not necessarily emotionally intelligent but intellectually very intelligent uh, very knowledgeable people and I may or may not have stood out in those environments however in the in the let's say bigger scheme I I do feel as though I stand out from a from just a knowledge and, and skills perspective so yeah it's it's a little recalibration and then maybe a little bit of self-love it's it's that looking at who that comparison pool so when you're comparing yourself to other people who have those same degrees that you have then maybe you don't feel as smart when you're comparing yourself to the average rest of the world super smart and we all do this in regardless of whether we have a master's degree in physics or whatever we compare ourselves <clears throat> unfavorably to people who are doing what we perceive as so much better than us. Absolutely. Yeah, the comparison trap. We also don't see the full picture. We, you know, we're comparing our insides to somebody's outsides that are highly polished and maybe heavily filtered. So yeah, it's it's taken me a long time to heal that part of me and to start to see things for, for really what it is, is just nobody knows shit, you know, like it's, everybody's confused. Um, everybody's a little bit crazy. It's not a competition and <laughs> we're all just doing the best we can. Sometimes I wonder about that crazy competition though. Some people <laughs> are, are treating it like it is. That's right. Yeah. There's a, they're going to get a, they're going to get a gold star in, in, in just crazy. <laughs> Sometimes you wonder. So since the show is called Fine is a Four-Letter Word, tell us about a time when you said everything was fine and it really wasn't fine. Oh, jeez. How long do we have? Oh, um, <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, oof. Since this is on a podcast, I have to ask myself every so often, who might listen to it? Um, boy, one thing was fine and it wasn't. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, jeez. I was at Samsung Austin Semiconductor for 11 years, and there was a lot of times when things weren't fine at all, and I just let it go because I just didn't feel that the fight was worth it or that I felt that the, it would, it, the short-term versus long-term, what I, what I saw as a short-term um, sacrifice justified a long-term gain, and I you know, to get really specific, I can, I can think of a, a ton of different things, but there was, um, oh, it's a funny story. I was, so the, we were moving from one kind of device to another device. Um, this was going from dynamic Ram. So DRAM to flash memory. So every single cel cellular phone, every digital camera, uh, even many laptops now have a lot of flash memory in them, uh, in the form of the uh, solid state drives, the SSDs. And there was this, let's say management there was saying, it's like a, it's like a war and we're at war with Fujitsu and 
Sony and, you know, and they routed out off all these people who we were in war with. So he said, hey, come on down to this meeting room. It's a meeting room held 90 people and they had a big, big screen. They were watching, we were watching a movie and they said, hey, we want you to watch this clip. So they put on this war movie and it was from, it was a Korean war movie. And of course it has subtitles and everything. And it had the goriest war scene ever. And I remember thinking to myself, I need to walk out of here because this is not good for my psyche. This is not good for me. In fact, this tells me how incredibly toxic this work culture is. If these guys up there in the front of the room think this is acceptable to have us watch somebody take a helmet and beat another man to death with it. I mean, it, 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 it eclipsed any of the war movies I had ever seen up to that point. And I thought, why am I tolerating this? But I, I said, it's fine. Right. And I just went about the rest of my day. And now here I am. I'm like, that's one of my many stories that I'm going to put in this fictional book that I have yet to write. And I say fictional, meaning that the book itself is fictional. What goes into the book is not <laughs> fictional at all. Um, so yeah, like I, I would say that across the 11 years when I worked at that company, I, there were many days where I said, everything's fine, but yet I was ripping my own self apart in terms of my self-esteem, my self-confidence. And, uh, that was what really I had to repair even to get out of the company. Um, so that was, that was a really tough thing. Did you start working on that self-esteem and self-repair while you were still there or did you have to leave to even get started? No, I had to I had to do it while I was there because in my view I have a responsibility and I have a obligation, which I know those are really in a lot of ways kind of really bad words, especially obligation, but I felt like you know, I was I was at that time a, a divorced father I, I had certain financial obligations that I had to attend to. And I, I didn't see that, okay, I could bail out and, uh, you know, draw on a 401k or, uh, you know, go to the, go to the corporate council and at the company and, and say, Hey, I'm leaving. And I could, I could sue you, right. For some of these things that have happened here some reverse discrimination, some all kinds of just stuff, right? I could have done all kinds of, made all kinds of statements and and possibly gotten a, a settlement out of them. And uh, I didn't, but I, I said, hey, I'm going to stay here. Now, it, it coincided with my recovery from alcoholism. And <clears throat> when I finally made that decision to quit drinking, I started to build up that personal power. And then because I was in a place of, okay, you know what? I still got this job. I'm cool. I got, I got this income coming in. Now I can put the periscope up and with my own repaired, partially repaired self, I can go out to the, um, in, into the, to the career space and do the career search and try to find a job in my area in this very niche industry, right? The semiconductor industry. There's not like you know, semiconductor fabs on every corner. There's not 
microelectronics companies on every corner. It's not like being an insurance salesman. Mm -hmm. So that was what had to happen, right? It was, it was kind of a parallel path. I had to start repairing myself. And then even after I left, I had to repair myself because I kind of, once I left and I went to the other company, I still had kind of this residual PTSD. Yeah, I was just going to say, it sounds like you would have had PTSD. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like the, the, the things that people say to you, the things that were done. I remember there was a story. I told my dad about this one. I And he, he said he would have just literally walked out. I was in a meeting. I got blamed for a problem. And uh, myself, my manager, and another gentleman went into a meeting. The meeting started out all in English. And then at one point, it went into Korean, and it was like, and I'm hearing my name. And I'm going, wait a minute, you're throwing me under the bus in a foreign language? I can't even understand either of you. And both of you have lived in this country for greater than 10 years, and your English is pretty darn good, and yet you're throwing me under the bus in a foreign language? My dad was like, oh, I would have just thrown my badge down and walked out. I was like, well, I couldn't. But that was the kind of thing, like I became so sensitized to being blamed for things that I became very de defensive. And so when I went out, even left that company, when, when things would happen, I would, you know, my amygdala would get all fired up and I'm all like, you know, fight or flight, right. you know, fawn or freeze. to respond yeah, so in a certain way or actually not even respond. It was react Absolutely. in a certain way. Absolutely. And I had to move so through to that. you had to retrain your, re rewire your brain, really. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that was really, you know, what had happened there. And it's still evolving. You know, the very fact that I'm even talking about this with you today is kind of a sign that I'm not 100% healed. Yeah. Speaking of talking, and you mentioned it a few minutes ago about your being in recovery. What inspired you to take that step because you were still at this toxic company when you made the decision to do that what was there a specific incident or what led you to to that yeah it's so funny because everybody you know one would imagine let's just say this one would imagine that you know they, they say change happens when the pain is greater than the gain you know, I probably heard Tony Robbins say that a dozen times. At the point at which I finally made that decision, there was zero pain. It was, it was very strange. Uh, I remember August 29th, 2016. I, I had had, I don't know, between three, four, something like that, three or four shots of vodka. And it maybe it was 10, 11 a.m. in the morning. I didn't normally do that, but I, you know, on the weekends I would have a little bit earlier. And, uh, I handed off the bottle to my girlfriend and I said, Hey, please uh, take this from me. And she said, you know, because she wasn't an alcoholic and she lived around normies her whole life. She was like, Oh yeah, I'll keep it for special occasions. And I was like, no, 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 you need to take that from me. And then I went to the freezer and I grabbed the other recently purchased, unfortunately, <laughs> bottle of tequila. And I handed it to her. I said the same thing. I said, please take this. And ironically, yeah, there was not a bot like the bottoms all were between two and 
eight years before that, a succession of bottoms, you know, getting my first DWI, getting my second arrest for DWI, getting my third arrest for DWI, getting a driving with license invalid and getting arrested in front of my girlfriend and my son and her son. All of those were all in 2014. So yeah, I mean, I had a succession of bottoms. The only thing I can imagine that happened was that, I mean, God intervened. Mm. I, I mean, that's the only thing I can imagine. Is that It was time. It was time. Yeah, it was, just was time. It was just time. And yeah, it's funny because I go back through my phone, you know, and I, you know, because of the wonders of the, the, the cell phone, right? We have all these pictures and they all have date right. stamps and all them. And I'm looking back and I'm like, wow. So four days before I got sober, I was doing this and, and then two days before. And, and I'm like, well, this is interesting. There's nothing noteworthy. These are all just normal life events. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You are very open about talking about your recovery on LinkedIn and ev- ev- elsewhere. How, how many years were you drinking? And what then did you do after that? Did you go into a program? Um, how many years was I drinking? So I, I was a late bloomer in terms of when I really started. Cause when I was in high school, a lot of the kids had already started raiding their parents' liquor cabinets and things like that. And, and occasionally we would have a little, uh, gatherings at my friend Mike's house and his parents had some liquor in the cabinet and we would have a little bit. And I think there were kind of signs at that point, but I really wasn't, I wasn't aware of it. And I think it was that, that sense of ease and comfort that came with taking a couple of drinks. Um, but I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't like going crazy with it. Right. I like most kids in high school, right? Yeah. We were all doing it. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, thanks to God or I, or maybe, maybe my own ignorance, knock on wood, my kids aren't doing that. And, uh, hopefully they'll learn from my, my experience. Then I went to college. I, you know, binge drank a little bit there. I was in a fraternity, so there was some, some drinking. Then, uh, I got to, I graduated and, you know, with my master's really didn't drink too, too much. But the morning was there was one uh, Halloween party and one of the coworkers took a picture of me. I was passed out on the bathroom floor. And that was kind of a sign. And of course, in hindsight, you're like, hey, you know, blackout last night, you know, whatever. So those were really, you know, it was just really kind of little episodic things. And then. I went to Korea for five weeks and, you know, I think I had like a pilot light of alcoholism because of my, the environment that I, you know, grew up with, with, with the people in my, my life, um, who drank and just some of the things, my childhood experiences and, and whatnot. And then when, and genetics, <laughs> um, and then it was like, um, five weeks was, just too much. It was like so much gasoline being poured upon this pilot light and it just, it just started to burn things down. And, uh, then I came back and I was a daily drinker and, you know, it's funny cause I'll talk to clients about coaching and I'll say, Hey, when there's a habit, 
that is very pleasurable. You know, imagine like cocaine, chocolate, heroin, alcohol. That's easy to form that habit in a very short period of time. Whereas positive habits that don't have a pleasure dopamine mechanism, if you will, they're hard to build. And so the science says it's like 70 to 80 days to actually build those kind of habits. Well, I had five weeks of a pleasurable habit. So I came back and I was a daily drinker and then it just kept escalating. You know, alcoholism is a progressive disease. It gets worse, never better. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. So, I mean, that was 2007 when I really started to drink a lot. And so I went from 2007 to 2016. So I had nine year, a pretty strong nine year drinking career. And then you just decided on that, on August 29th that you were done. Yes. Did you, did you go to a program? Did I you did go to a program. Decide, I didn't go to, I'm going to do this on my own. Yeah, I did go to a program. I didn't go into rehab. I didn't go into detox. Fortunately, my body, the way my body processed alcohol and the sheer amount of it was not such that I had, you know, delirium tremens or any kind of physical symptoms. Uh, thanks, thanks to God on that one, because that's what a, a lot of times what happens is, is people say, hey, I want to quit drinking. And then they start to get the, the shakes or they get the DTs. And then they're like, holy shit, I can't. And then they have to go back and, and keep drinking. So yeah, I did. I, I, I got into a, a program of recovery and fully embraced it. And uh, I can say, you know, my life has been transformed through it. And I jokingly say in that recovery program, I say, this is like the world's cheapest and longest Tony Robbins weekend. Because we, we went there to quit drinking, yet we are helped in so many other ways. Like it, 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 it's like the solution to the drink is the solution to the life problem. You know, the same, the same, let's say design for living and the same way of approaching life that, you know, so the drinking is just a symptom, right? Of a, of a, of a, a spiritual problem or a, a void that people have. And, uh, so yeah, that's, that's how it, how it all, uh, transpired. And yeah, I am, I am very transparent about it and I share a lot about it on social media because I know that it's going to help somebody, um, for as much as there could be somebody who's judging me and saying, Oh, this guy, he's, you know, sensationalizing it or who the hell is he? Or, or even that active alcoholic who doesn't want to read what I'm saying. I honestly don't give up. And because you have a, a, I can use the Chaucerian expletive. I don't give a fuck. I really have run out of fucks for people out there who are going to look down on folks who want to be, who want a better life. It's kind of like making fun of the fat person at the gym. You know what I mean? Like, remember that person's here because they want to transform. And so if somebody is helped by my post and the cool thing is, I know with a hundred percent certainty, having written what I've written and shared what I've shared, I have helped a lot of people. And I'm not saying that like to pat myself on the back. What I'm saying is, is that for any of the 
the judgment that people may have looking down on me saying whatever negative thing they can say, I can say the the juice is worth the squeeze. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what you write, no doubt, helps other people. And I would imagine helps you as well to get it out of your head and to put it on paper, paper, you know, electronic yeah. paper. <laughs> uh, ev- so everyone benefits. Talk to me about the tools that you use or that you have used to not just in your recovery necessarily, like recovery from drinking, but to keep you in a a positive or an uplifting mindset. Are there tools that you use every day Mm. or that you have used, or maybe not tools that you're using today, but have used to get you to where you are today? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And there's, there's a ton of things there. Uh, so I, I say, you know, first, the first thing is just getting incredibly honest with yourself and your emotions. And one way of doing that is with journaling and, you know, really in, in fact, when I first got into recovery, that was my way of staying present when I, I felt like, um, I was being pulled in different directions, at least mentally. And I would just sit and write and write and write. And, um, so that was helpful. Um, I would also say that the, the prayer and meditation, of course, is, is something that everybody would, would say can help you. And I can, you know, even this morning I did, I did 10 minutes, uh, of meditation and there was just some clarity that came to me. I would say having a lot more openness with, with people. So now you've written and you've, you've gotten very honest, well, getting out there and, and not holding on to these things. And, you know, that's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of like these things will weigh, weigh you down. Right. So, so when you, you know, you're not open with other people. Now you carry that stuff around with you. It's like an emotional burden. So I had to start to get brutally honest with people in my life. Am I perfect at it? Hell no. It's progress, not perfection. And, and then of course, you know, willing, a a willingness to do things that are really outside of, and I know it's so cliche, the outside your comfort zone. You know, but it's true. It's really true. Like doing uncomfortable things. So now you've, you know, you've been honest with yourself. The, those, that honesty, that reflection has come to you either through, you know, journaling with prompts, journaling free form, then openness to new ideas can come from being very, very quiet with your mind through meditation and prayer. And then you know, the willingness to go out there and start to have these conversations and, and do things that scared you, um, that, that has helped me immensely so that I'm not carrying around so much of a, of a backpack of these emotional burdens that were my own, let's say my own justification for, you know, picking up the drink or even just being an asshole. Right. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who, 
maybe it's not that they're going to pick up a drink and get drunk. They're just going to have, they're going to make a mess out of their life. And then they're going to have like an emotional hangover, right? Like the next day they're going to be like, I can't believe I said that to that person. Like, right. They've, you know, they've created that chaos. Yeah. And drama. Yeah. In their life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and drama is addictive. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say drama is addictive. I, I, I myself have had been in that place where I created messes all over my life just to feel more. Yeah. Yeah. As you were talking about unburdening yourself by being open, I had this visual of a hot air balloon, which is something I've is on my bucket list. I would love to do yeah. a hot air balloon. Uh, but a hot air, like you have to let go of the, they have to toss the sandbags over to fly. Absolutely. And it's, I had that visual as you it's were talking perfect. about unburdening yourself to, so that you can fly, so that you can achieve great things in your life, unburden those things that aren't serving you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they could be in the form of a resentment that you, you know, you have against somebody. And so now you, you know, you need to have a difficult conversation with somebody. It could be that you wronged somebody and now you need to uh, go and, and make some amends with somebody. But you know, it's all this stuff that you're carrying around. You, you can unburden yourself and then you'll be lighter. Just like you said. Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't even necessarily have to be with another person. You know, that forgiveness mm -hmm. a lot of times is forgiving yourself mm -hmm. for being human, for making mistakes, for making choices that you in hindsight maybe would have preferred to make a different choice. But forgive yourself because you did the best you could with what you had and what you knew at the time. And now let, let that burden go so that you can move forward in freedom. Absolutely. In fact, there's a, um, so you really, that's a, you're pointing to self empathy. And in, in one of the coaching programs that I do, uh, one of the tools is called visualize the child. And you go back and you find a four five, six year old picture of yourself. And I've got this super cute seventies kid picture of myself or my mom matched my socks with my, my sport coat or whatever it was sweater. I had a sweater on, you know, I, it was like a little model, you know, and I can see in it, I can see my essence and I can see that, that pure essence that I had as a child. And sometimes looking at that, that helps me create more empathy for myself. And, and so I can have that self-forgiveness. That's yeah, that's a, a very powerful exercise. Thank you so much for sharing what you've shared today. Before we go, the, the question, the ending question is always, what is the song you listen to when you need a boost of energy? You need to get hyped. You know, in baseball, they call it your walk-up song. Yeah. Like, what's your song? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and it changes all the time. And I'll tell you what it is this week, because I'm going to give a speech tomorrow. And it, at Toastmasters, it's my favorite way to get better at this thing that people are scared of. And I'm going to make reference to this song that has been in my world for a long time. So it's from a band, a musical band, a, excuse me, not a music band, an electronic band called the Chemical Brothers, which maybe back in my partying days, it was a little bit more apropos. However, they have a song called It Doesn't Matter. 
And it's, the lyrics are very simple. It is literally, it doesn't matter. And it's a, a repeated, uh, it, you know, they just repeat that. And there's a, a bass line in the background. And I'm going to go put it on as soon as we're done with this call, because it, for whatever reason, it just lightens things up. And I think that there's such a power in releasing that something really matters, right? Like, like sometimes people say, oh, you know, uh, use the five-year rule. Like if you look back on it, five, you know, five years from now and it, it wouldn't have mattered, you know, then, then whatever, you know, let it go. And I, I forget the way it is. And it's Osho, by the way, not Oshi. By the way, it's Osho. It came to me after we said okay, it. Okay, cool. O-S-H-O. That's the way my brain works. It just kind of goes off. and We got it. Squirrel. So yeah, I would, I would say Chemical Brothers, it doesn't matter. So play that, crank it up, break your speakers. That's what I'm going to go do. Awesome. Well, I'm, we're going to put a link to that in the show notes so everybody can go listen to it and have that running through their head. Cool. Awesome. If someone wants to continue a conversation with you, where's the best place to find you? I mainly hang out on LinkedIn. I do have a Facebook page, of course. I'm easier to find on LinkedIn because I'm Stephen English with a V. English spelled like the language, comma, PCC, Professional Certified Coach. There's only one of me out there. On Facebook, there's a whole bunch of Stephen Englishes. Not too, too many. You'll probably recognize my picture. My picture between both platforms looks the same. So they can find me on either platform. Okay. And I'll cool. give you a link tree. I'll give you a link tree link for your show notes. Perfect. Yeah. So I'll include that in the show notes and it'll make it really easy for people. Toot toot. Thank you Thanks, so Lord. much for joining me today, Stephen, on Fine is a Four-Letter Word. Awesome blossom. I appreciate how open Stephen is about his journey. Here are the key takeaways from today's conversation. Number one, when you're working in a toxic environment, you may not see the way out right away. Like Stephen, you may have to stay because you need the money or the health insurance because you have responsibilities. However, you can still start working on repairing your self-esteem and self-confidence in order to prepare yourself to move on. And once you do move on, be gentle with yourself. The recovery and healing that you need to go through won't happen overnight, even after you free yourself from the traumatic situation. Notice when you overreact to situations that trigger your amygdala to go into fight, flight, or freeze. Number two, Stephen's been very open about his recovery journey. I have other friends and people I've known who are in recovery as well, and they say the same thing. The solution to their drinking problem is the solution to almost all the other problems people face in life as well. Focus on understanding and developing yourself. That is the only person you can change. Number three. I love that so many of my guests have found their way to a place where they've run out of fucks. One of my new goals with this show, in addition to letting you know there's nothing wrong with you and you're not alone, is to help you reach a point where you too can look through your kitchen pantry and say, well, will you look at that? I'm all out of fucks. Number four, get brutally honest with yourself and the people in your life. You can use journaling and meditation to get the thoughts out of your head and then get some clarity. Use those tools to let go of the emotional burdens you're carrying around. Is it going to feel uncomfortable? Yes, of course. 
And that's the way forward, through the discomfort. I gave the analogy of cutting the sandbags off a hot air balloon, getting rid of the weight so you can fly. Number five, remember and use the self-empathy tool Stephen shared about visualizing the child. Find a picture of yourself at about five years old. Look at it and see, really see, the pure essence of that child and use it to forgive yourself, to create more empathy for yourself. This exercise works for finding empathy for others as well, even if you don't have an actual picture of them. If you imagine what they looked like as a young child and feel empathy for them. Lastly, after the recording, Stephen found that Osho he was talking about on Insight Timer was not on Insight Timer. Osho is actually a different meditation app. You can find a link to it in the show notes or find it at osho.com. Thanks for being here and subscribing to Find is a Four-Letter Word. Please share this show with a friend or a colleague. If you're feeling especially generous, leave a review so other people like you can discover the show too. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and all the major podcast directories. You can join me on social too. On Instagram, it's zen underscore rabbit. You can find links to the other platforms at zenrabbit.com. Before you go, remember to take a moment to think about what you're grateful for today. Lastly, you can find this week's meditation queued up right after this episode. And if no one's told you this week, I'm proud of you. Take good care.